All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And before we get started on uh, this week's teaching, I'm going to give you a little bit of quiz for those of you who were here last week on, uh, on last week's teaching to see how closely you were paying attention and uh, how much you remembered and learned. Now, for those of you who weren't able to make it last week, you could always watch the video on YouTube. Okay, well, let's, let me give you some quick questions, just some basic stuff. These are things you should have caught on to very easily. These aren't like little details I gave you on a, in a second. These are things that I pushed pretty hard. Uh, the first one's really easy. Who was the writer of the first gospel? Daniel? Matthew. That's right. Someone else tell me, what was another name that Matthew was called by? Levi. Levi. Very good, sir. What group of people was Matthew writing to? The Jews. Very good. Very good, Caitlin. Can anyone remember about when was the Gospel according to Matthew written? Uh, Angel? Yeah, that's pretty close. Did you have a question to answer, John? Uh, yes. Uh, this was written before 66 AD since he was killed then, and it would have been written between 50 and 60 AD, somewhere around there. Um, where now? John just told us when he died, 66 A.D. Does anyone remember where he died? John. That's right. He died in Ethiopia. Does anyone remember how he died? There. That's right. Spear to the ground and beheaded. God has a wonderful plan for your life, doesn't he? Could include getting speared to the ground and beheaded. Amen. All right, so that, that's a good little review. Uh, also, one more thing: what were? Can anyone name one of the major themes of the Gospel of Matthew? The kingship of Jesus. The kingship of Jesus, being the Messiah. Anyone else? The kingdom of God. It's a hand living, living within the kingdom of God, living an obedient life to the King, because you're a subject of His kingdom. Anything else? Daniel. The conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. That's right. Daniel. Jesus being the fulfiller of the law. There's one more I gave you. Do you remember the last one? That's part of what? That's part of it. The, the first one you gave. Daniel? The end times. Jesus coming back. The second time. Not as a suffering servant. Not as a baby in a manger. But as a conquering king ready to devour his adversaries. As the Bible says. All right, let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read through verse 17, then we're going to go back through it. Uh, we're going to compare this genealogy to the genealogy found in Luke. Uh, we're going to look at certain people found in this genealogy in Matthew and look at their lives, and then we're going to uh, give a little bit of a conclusion here. Okay. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, <clears throat> the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab, and Amminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Jerome. And Jerome begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. These names are pretty cool, huh? Abiad begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azer. Azer begot Zadok. Zadok begot Akim. And Akim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathan. And Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was Jesus, who was born, Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations from the captivity in Babylon to the Christ 
our 14 generations. Man, those names are a mouthful, aren't they? And I'll tell you, when I first became a Christian, and I'd read the genome, I kind of would skip over them. You know, because I was just like, man, it's just a bunch of begotten and begotten, and all these, the son of this and the son of that, especially in the Old Testament, where it's a little bit longer than this. But there's really some, there's a lot of wealth that can be found in genealogy, which we'll get to here in a minute. But I want to, first thing I want to do is help you remember that this is written to the Jewish people. And there's a point Matthew's trying to make in starting out his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And just so the children know, genealogy is another word for family tree. It's your family. You know, if your family were to start with your grandfather, it'd be your grandfather and then your grand, and then your uh, your father and then you and then your children and then their children. That's called a genealogy. It's like a family tree, okay? Uh, and for someone to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, he'll sit upon David's throne. He must meet certain requirements. One, he must be the legal holder to the throne of David. Through the line of David. He must be the legal holder through the line of the kings who are kings after David. Number two, he must be in the bloodline of David in order to sit on the throne. But there'll be a problem with that later on that we'll get into. Okay? Now, why were these requirements necessary for the Messiah? Well, because God made promises to David. Let's go to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel in chapter 7. And listen to the promises that God made to David. And this will tell us why these, these uh, requirements must be met. This is God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. We'll look at just, just look at two verses real quick, and I can read the whole thing. Uh, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Forever. Uh, then in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne, your throne shall be established forever. Forever. So the, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the one who sit upon David's throne, must be a legal descendant of David through the line of the kings, and he must be a blood descendant of David as well. Okay? And what we see here in the genealogy found in Matthew is that the first requirement is met. That Jesus is the legal holder to the throne of David through the kings who came after David, through his father, Joseph, who was his legal father. Now, of course, uh, Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus. Uh, he was the legal father of Jesus. In fact, he's the only father, earthly father Jesus would ever know. But he was the legal son of of, jo of uh, Joseph. So Matthew, a Jew, right from the beginning, is trying to show his Jewish readers that Jesus had a legal right to reign on the throne of David and that he was the Messiah, that he was in the royal line through his f legal father, Joseph. And, uh, of course, we know that Jesus wasn't conceived by a man and a woman, he wasn't conceived by the normal right of conception, that he was conceived by mirac uh, miraculous birth, miraculous conception, uh, he was conceived by a woman's submission to God's plan. And as it says in Matthew 1.18, uh, it says, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't a, a husband and wife coming together and conceiving a child. This was a woman submitting to God's plan for her life and the Holy Spirit miraculously conceiving a child within her. That was the way Christ came about. So, the, so Christ's only true father, his only, his only literal father, was God the Father. Joseph wasn't his literal father. He was only his legal guardian or his adopted father. The second requirement, which is the physical bloodline of David, is met through the genealogy which is found in Luke chapter 3. Let's go to Luke chapter 3. In verse 23. Now, I'm not going to read through this whole one. <laughs> I'm not going to put myself through the pain of reading all those names again. But uh, Luke chapter 3, I'm going to read the first verse, at least, to you. It says, Now Jesus himself, this is Luke 3.23, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed 
the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which gives credence to the idea that uh, he was conceived by miraculous conception, the virgin birth, the virgin conception. Okay? Uh, the, the genealogy we see here in Luke is not Joseph's genealogy. This is Mary's genealogy. And of course, in, in those days, it was very rare to mention a woman in a genealogy at all. It's always mentioned the man, whether he was the biological father of the, of the, 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 the boy or not. It's always the man that's mentioned. We do see exceptions to the rule, but that's, that's basically what the rule is. So the virgin birth is what is proposed here because, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. So, but, the, but Luke here, Luke isn't writing to Jews. Luke is writing to Gentiles. So he's not trying to prove anything to, Jew, to the Jewish readers. In fact, as you can tell, how far back, look at, look at verse 38. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. How far back did he go? All the way back to the beginning. So it's written to Gentiles, and the whole point Luke is trying to make here to his Gentile readers is that Jesus, he's trying to show them his human side, his side of humanity, that he is the son of man, that he goes all the way back to the beginning. Now, of course, the Jews, that wasn't the concern Matthew was meeting with the Jews. He returned, listen, he's of Father Abraham, and he's of King David of the royal line. But here we have now with Jesus, he's in the bloodline through Mary, of David. The bloodline. So now we have the two conditions met. We have the royal line met through Joseph's genealogy, Jesus being the legal son of Joseph, and has the legal right to the throne of David through the kings who came after David, and Matthew's genealogy. And then in Luke, we have Jesus being of the bloodline of David. And you can see David mentioned in verse 31. Now which son did David come, uh, did Jesus come through in his bloodline? He came through Nathan. Nathan's not really mentioned much in the Bible, but that's the son of David who Jesus came through as far as his bloodline, as far as his, his uh, mother Mary is concerned. But Run that by me, Dad. I don't see Mary in here. You don't see Mary? Oh, yeah, Mary isn't mentioned in verse 23. But what I'm saying here, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Okay? So this is talking about a bloodline here, whereas Matthew's talking about his legal line uh, through Joseph, his father. Okay? And um, so we see, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, son of Eli. Now we go back to Matthew chapter 1 again, real quick. And we see here, in verse 16, that Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. So we have two different people here. We have Joseph over here with Eli. It says the son of Heli, and over here it says that Jacob begot Joseph. So that's where we have a discrepancy here. They can't be the same line. Now go back to Luke real quick, and if you notice in your Bible, I don't know what version of the Bible you're reading, but it's, it probably says the son of Heli, right? But the son of should be in italics. If it's in italics, that means it's not in the original Greek. So the original Greek simply says Joseph of Heli. Doesn't say the son of Heli originally. It says of Heli. Now the translators they're, they're doing a little dynamic equivalence here. In other words, they're taking the Greek and they're kind of helping the reader out a little bit by by adding some words into it in English. Okay, which sometimes can be good and sometimes can be confusing. Now the reason it is because if you look through the rest of the genealogy, it's obvious from the rest of the Bible that we're talking about the son of the son of the son of the son of. We know Nathan's the son of David. Uh, we know. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all related one generation apart. But when it comes to Joseph and Heli, was Joseph literally the son of Heli by biological, by, by biology? Well, in the, in the Jewish uh, culture and in the Bible, there's five different ways the word son can be used. Now keep in mind, once again, in Luke... The word, the son of, is not found in the Greek, okay? Keep that in mind. But let's just give it some credence to that, and let's say that uh, it really means Joseph, the son of, he lied. Now, here's some ways the word, the son of, can be used 
uh, in the Bible. Number one, the normal sense of a one-generation biological offspring. Malachi's my son. I'm the son of Greg Skelling. That's a, that's a one offspring, one generation different. That's literally the son. Okay? Number two, it can be used in the sense of a descendant, even one who is more than one generation removed. Uh, po- uh, case in point, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, where it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, wait a minute, was he born from David? The son of Abraham. Was he born from Abraham? Down the line he was, but not immediate one generation son. So we see son, and that actually has the word son in the Greek there. Okay, so son can be used in more than one generation descendant away. Okay, number three, it can be used to describe a son-in-law. And this is what we're talking about here in Luke 3.23. Let me give you another example of what happens in the Bible. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And you'll see the situation with Saul the king and David the future king. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And uh, we'll look at verse 19. Now at this point, Saul had already said to David, you can have my older daughter Mirab. But then Saul reneged on that and gave her to someone else. Now David uh, likes his other daughter. Okay, verse 20 of 1 Samuel 18. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. So now he's calling the son-in-law right here. Okay, and then he, he goes off and, and kills 200 Philistines, brings the foreskins back, and he's able to marry Michal. Uh, let's go down to First uh, Samuel 24 and verse 16. This is where Saul's trying to chase David down now. His son-in-law, who's married to his daughter, Michal. And let's see what he calls her, calls David and, uh, in verse 16. So it was, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Now was David literally the son of Saul? No. In fact, he called, we just saw a few minutes ago, he called him son-in-law, which is what literally he was. The son-in-law of Saul. But David was also called son by Saul. My father-in-law calls me son. I call him dad sometimes. I call my stepfather dad sometimes. But not literally my father. I didn't come from them biologically. They didn't conceive me in their wife's womb. But I do consider them fathers. And as people who I would look up to in the faith, I consider fathers of the faith. But they're not literally my father. So the third use is a son-in-law. Okay, so one, we have a one-generational biological offspring. Two, a descendant who's more than one generation removed. Three, a son-in-law. Four, a deceased man who would have a son through a surrogate father who legally married the deceased man's widow. Okay, this is according to the law of Moses. You see this in Ruth chapter 2. Not really going to get into it very much right now. We'll get into it maybe a little bit when we discuss Ruth. But if a man was to die and leave his wife, the widow, sonless, a brother of that man was to conceive a son for his brother who had died. Now, the man who had died now has a son, but is it literally his son? Not biologically. But his brother provided a son for him so that his lineage won't be lost. And number five, the sense of a stepson who took on a legal status of his stepfather, the relationship sustained by Jesus to Joseph. So we see two exceptions to the rule of being a literal son here in these genealogies. One, that Joseph wasn't the literal son of Heli. He was a son-in-law of Heli. And that Jesus wasn't the literal son of Joseph. He was conceived by a miraculous conception the virgin conception of the virgin birth through the Holy Spirit. So, son doesn't always mean literal son in the Bible. So, we have to kind of get that in our minds here when we're talking about uh, these genealogies. Now, there, there, there's only really only one similarity I see between these two genealogies, and that is that from Abraham to David, we see the same exact people. Same exact people. But as I've already said, after David, 
Luke's genealogy, which is Mary's bloodline, goes through Nathan. Whereas Matthew's genealogy, which is the, the bloodline of the king, the royal bloodline, goes through Solomon the king and all the rest of the kings who come after him. Okay? But there's lots of differences. Uh, Matthew uses the word begot. Luke just says of, or as it translated, son of. Uh, and so because they're doing this, son of and begotting, they're flipped around. And Matthew's genealogy we have started with Abraham. And Luke's genealogy was starting with Jesus and going backwards. Okay? And we, of course we just saw that the, what the son of, what that really means. So Joseph, the son-in-law of Heli, according to Luke's genealogy of Jesus, and the literal son of Jacob, according to Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. That's what we see here. It says Matthew's, so they go in different directions. Um, and in, in between David and Jesus... The genealogies are completely different with two exceptions. These two names, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. We see them in both genealogies. Now, I spent a lot of time studying this issue. And there's different opinions out there. So I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's, it's, it's hard to understand, let alone hard to teach someone else. So I'm going to let you study it for yourself. But my conclusion on Shealtiel and Zerubbabel is this that there are four completely different people in these two genealogies. Why? Well, let me give you some reasons why I've come to this conclusion. One, Zerubbabel was a very common name during that time period. Gee, I wonder why. Wasn't Zerubbabel a famous guy who went back and helped rebuild Jerusalem? Yes. Very common name at that point in time. Number two, there even are names repeated within these genealogies. But we don't assume they're the same people. I mean, if I would have read Luke, you would have seen there's at least four people repeated. Their names repeated. But it's not the same exact person. It's simply the same name used. Number three. The names in the genealogies that we find in these genealogies are standard, common, everyday names. And, of course, as we go down the line, Shealtiel has a different father in both genealogies. So how can that possibly be? And finally, number four, number four uh, I've been given no reason to believe that they are the same people. I've been given no reason to believe that Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and these two genealogies are the same people. No reason to believe whatsoever. Okay? So the genealogy of Joseph, found in Matthew, traces the genealogy through Solomon, so it had to, had to do with being qualified to be on the throne of David legally. The genealogy of Mary. Which, as you pointed out, Mary's not mentioned in Luke, but we figured out what it was uh, through looking at other, other passages. Trace the genealogy through Nathan after David. Now let's take a look at some of these uh, specific people found in Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew, genealogy found there, and look at some specific people in here and see what Jesus' uh, line was like here. You know, what kind of people were in, in Jesus' uh, legal line here who he's tracing it back to? And also, some of them are going to be in this bloodline as well, if we were to go to the genealogy of Luke. You know, you expect them to be all holy people, all godly people. You know, people on fire for God, as we would say today. But as we're going to see, there are some wicked people involved in his genealogy. Let's look at Judah and Tamar first, found in verse 3. How many here know what happened uh, to, between Judah and Tamar and the, the birth of Perez and Zira? Anybody? Okay. Nope. That's pretty close, though. Pretty close. In the situation of Judah and Tamar, if you want to read, I'm going to give you a synopsis of what happened, but you can find it in Genesis 38. Just read that, that chapter. It'll tell you the whole thing of what happened there. Okay? Now, Judah, of course, was one of the sons of, uh, of Jacob, one of the sons of Israel, their name for Jacob, one of the tribes of Israel. He was the head of one of the tribes. <clears throat> and he had a daughter-in-law named Tamar. It was his daughter-in-law. And Tamar had, had married Judah, Judah's oldest son named Er, E-R, Er. And boy, did Er, Er. I'm going to tell you. Listen to what it says in, in Genesis 38:7 about Er. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. That's all it says about him. That's all we have anywhere in the Bible about him. I mean, he's mentioned in genealogies. That's all we have anywhere in the Bible about Er. How'd you like that to be your legacy? What people remember about you, that you are wicked in the sight of the Lord and God killed you. That's what remember about Er. And sure did he err. 
So we don't want to be like air. Either way, the customs of that time, as I've already stated, uh, and later on in the Law of Moses, in Deuteronomy 25.5, stated that when a man left a sonless widow behind, that a brother of that man was to provide a son through the widow. So, Onan, the brother of Er, the son of Judah, refused to do this. And guess what happened to him? In Genesis chapter 38 and verse 10. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Now, we find this sometimes throughout the Bible. And God in his wisdom sometimes kills sinners right away. Sometimes it gives them time to repent. Obviously, time had run out for Er. Time had run out for Onan. Time had run out for uh, the two people who were killed for not giving their money in the book of Acts. They were killed. Time ran out for Sodom and Gomorrah when God wiped them off the face of the planet. Time ran out for all the people in the world when God brought the flood and killed them all because Noah and his, and his children. But sometimes God gives them time to repent. And for some reason, he decided to kill these two. Now, I don't claim to know why, but obviously God is wise and good and just, and he decided to, to kill them, to bring judgment upon them. But you know what this should do for us? It should put a little fear in our hearts. It should make us never want to play with sin. Because for all you know, you could be the next Onan. You could be the next heir. And guess what the Bible said about the fear of God? It's the beginning of wisdom. And by the fear of God, men depart from iniquity. So it's good to have a little bit of fear of God in your heart. And it's good to have a lot of fear of God in your heart. You won't play games with God like these two men did. So Judah was now afraid, after having two sons lost, he was afraid to give his other son, his young son, named Shelah, to Tamar. But he did promise Tamar that when Shelah grew up, that he would give Shelah to Tamar as her husband. Unfortunately, Judah didn't fulfill his promise. So, later on, after Tamar realized that Judah was not going to fulfill his promise, he saw Judah coming into town one day. And she dressed up like a harlot. Like a prostitute. Doesn't mean she's wearing a bikini. It means she was just dressed like a harlot or prostitute. And um, Judah saw her and noticed her and thought maybe she was a harlot. So he went over and said, uh, you know, let's, let's go sin together. And they did. They went sin together. So we have Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob, a fornicator within the genealogy of Jesus. And we have Tamar acting like a horror, like a prostitute, in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Living in wickedness. But, and what happened from this? Well, Tamar eventually gave birth to two sons. One was named uh, Perez, and the other was named Zerah. And it's a little funny story about that, if you read in Genesis 38, where Zerah was coming out, his arm was out. They tied a scarlet thread around him, but then he put his arm back in and Perez came out first. It's a little interesting situation there. I've never heard of that happening before. I mean, my wife only has one in her, stomach, her belly right now, so hopefully she won't be having one coming out and then going back and the other one coming out. That'd be a little weird. But uh, that's what happened with, with these two uh, young ones. So we have Judah's lineage being continued, not through one of his sons, but through himself. And having sexual morality with one of his former daughter-in-laws. That's what we see. So, yeah, so we, have, we have a harlot and a fornicator in Jesus' genealogy. Let's move on to Rahab and Ruth in verse 3. I'm sorry, in, in verse, uh, verse 5. Now, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. So, Rahab, you can find the account of her situation in Joshua chapter 2 and in Joshua chapter 6. And Rahab was a harlot or a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Well, now we have two harlots or two prostitutes found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But when Joshua sent two spies from Israel to go in to check out Jericho, somehow the people of Jericho found out about these spies. And they didn't want them there. They were afraid of the Israel. They had heard what God had done to the Egyptians and how he had parted the Red Sea. And they were faint-hearted, according to the Bible, about the Israelites even coming near them. Because they were afraid their God would do the same thing to them they did to the Egyptians. And uh, so, but 
Rahab found out about this, and she decided to protect the two men. She hid them in her house and protected them. In exchange for her help and protection, they vowed not to kill or destroy anyone or anything that was found in her household when they came to destroy Jericho. As long as she had that red scarlet hanging out the window. What does that remind you of? The blood on the doorpost. Always bring us back to the blood. Always bring us back to the blood of Jesus Christ. A shadow of what was to come at that point in time. So, so after Jericho was destroyed, Rahab and her family stayed with Israel and became a part of them. It even says in Joshua 6.25, So she dwells in Israel to this day. So whenever Joshua was written, I don't know exactly when it was written, but Rahab was still alive when it was written. For she dwelled in Israel to this day. Not only this, but Rahab is mentioned in the Hall of Faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 31, it says of her this, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies. So not only did she help the two spies, but she also believed. But what does this, what does this word believe mean? Does it mean that she had mere mental assent about what was going to happen, or that God was going to destroy Jericho? Is that what it means? No, it's a life-changing belief, just as it is with everyone who begins to follow the God of the Bible. In fact, the Greek word that's translated as did not believe, apatheo, could also be translated as were disobedient. So Rahab was obedient. She wasn't disobedient like the rest of the people were. She's obedient. She had faith. She had an obedient faith. Which is what every person must have if they're going to be a Christian. So we have another person, another harlot, another prostitute involved in the genealogy of Jesus. But we do know that she stopped being a prostitute. She stopped being a harlot. She didn't continue in her harlotry and her, her prostitution. She became obedient. Ruth's account is found, of course, in the book of Ruth in the Bible. A whole book named after her, which is right after Judges and right before 1 Samuel. Ruth is a story of loyalty, faithfulness, and repentance. Ruth is a Moabite woman who married a Jewish man who was a son of a Jewish woman named Naomi. After Naomi's husband and Ruth's husband, who was Naomi's son, died, now we have Ruth and Naomi the chance to part ways. Naomi a Jew, Ruth a Moabite. Different religions, different backgrounds, different people. They had a chance to part way. But listen to what Naomi said to, to uh, what the Ruth said to Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs you and me. The most important part there, if you ask me, is your God will be my God. That's the most important part. She was repenting of whatever her Moabite religion was and coming to the true faith and worshiping the true God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they, we find in these two verses, Ruth 1, 16 and 17, we find loyalty, faithfulness, and repentance from Ruth. Ruth ended up marrying Boaz due to the same laws that would have caused uh, one of Judah's sons to marry Tamar. Due to the same laws. But, but Boaz was very willing. Boaz wasn't wicked like Judah's sons were. There was no problem in this case. And in the end, Ruth, the former Moabite, from a false religion, ended up being the great-grandmother of King David. The great-grandmother of King David. So even so now, now even we have two, we've had two harlots now, we've had a fornicator, and now we have a non-Jew Moabite in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, quite a pedigree. Quite a bunch of messed up people. And then in verse 6, now we all know the story of David and Bathsheba, the woman who had been the wife of Uriah, as, as the Gospel of Matthew says. You find it in Second Second Samuel chapter 11. David's men were sent off to war. Well, David stayed behind. And one night David was just roaming around on his roof, and, and uh, he saw Bathsheba bathing through her window. Let me ask the men a question here for a second. Let's say that this was by accident. 
He's roaming around with an eye. He just happened to see her. He wasn't being a peeping Tom. He was just trying. He wasn't trying to look for someone. He was just happened to see her by accident. What should he have done? Run, run! Remember the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Run! What, that's what he did. That's what jo- Joseph did in, in Genesis thirty-nine nine. He said, "He said, how how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God?" That's the first thing that should pop into your mind. We're tempted. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? Now, how does this feel to me? What can I get out of it? Oh, it's going to be okay. I'll ask for forgiveness later. No, it should be how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? And you know what? We have an example of 1 Corinthians 6.18 in Joseph. Flee sexual immorality. Flee it. Don't sit there and mull it over. Don't even just turn your head. Flee. Run. For your life. Because your life does depend on it, whether you think it does or not. This sin's a rattlesnake. It's going to bite you and it'll kill you. If you don't deal with it. But did David flee? He sure didn't. He gazed. He meditated upon he conceived some wicked things in his mind. He sent for her and committed adultery with her. Then what did he do then? What did he do next? Did he confess it and forsake it and repent of it? Did he humble himself? He covered it up. And what did sin lead to? It led to more sin and more sin and more sin and more sin. That's what sin leads to, more sin. That's what sin leads to every single time. Children, you lie to your parents. You try to cover later on, you lie to them again. You lie to your brothers and sisters, you try to cover, you lie to your parents. You lie to someone else. You have to lie all these things just to cover one little sin that you're not willing to give up and confess and forsake. And I'll tell you this, no matter how many people you think you're fooling, you're not fooling God. <clears throat> Nothing's hidden from His sight. David said, whether I go up to the sky or I go down to the depths, there you are. He's watching. And we should do things in view of Him, in light of Him seeing us, not in light of whether my parents saw me, or whether my friends saw me, or whether my brother and sister in Christ saw me. So the question I have for you, what are you doing in the darkness when no one else is watching? Are you living a holy life? What are you doing when your parents aren't watching? And your brothers and sisters aren't willing to tell on you? Because they're too scared. What are you doing then? Are you being obedient to God? It's a very important question to ask ourselves. So David didn't confess and forsake his sins. David tried very hard to cover up. He sent for Uriah, a very hard fighter off at war, brought him back. He said, Uriah, go be with your wife. And what did Uriah do? Did he do that? He was an honorable man. He said, how dare I, when my, my fellow soldiers are off at war, how dare I go live comfortably and eat and, and drink and be with my wife? And David tried so hard to get him to go back to his wife, to cover up his own sin, because he knew, he knew Bessie would be pregnant. He tried so hard to cover up that he even got Uriah drunk one night. He even got him drunk. Because he knew he would dole down the sense that he maybe could push him off. But even then, Uriah was so honorable that he would not go back, even as a drunkard, to his wife and be with her. So David stuck between a rock and a hard place. Now he has a decision to make. Am I going to confess my sin to Uriah? to Bathsheba and the rest of Israel, because it's going to affect everybody, or do I continue to try to cover it up? What did he do? He continued to try to cover it up. He went so far that this honorable man, he had him killed. He sent him off to war. He said to Joab as general, I don't know how Joab would actually agree to this. He's wicked too to be even involved in this. He said, Joab, send him off to the fiercest fight there is. And they have everyone else draw back. And he was killed. And he was killed. But guess what? Did he escape God's seeing of this? Did he get away without being rebuked and have to confess and forsake his sin? No, the prophet of God got in his face and confronted him. Told him a little story about a lamb who was taken from an owner. And David said, oh, that man should be killed today. That man is you. That man is you, Nathan said. He wasn't playing games. And David finally gave in. I and mean, we see the, the penitent psalm of David in Psalm 51. A man broken over his sin. There's lots of uh, symbolism and 
hyperbole, as you've seen many times by looking at Psalm 51.5 in that psalm. But he was broken, and rightly so. Just like a sinner is broken any time they come to repentance. But the Bible says the sacrifice of God a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Proverbs 28.13 says this, He who covers a sin will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them, forsakes them will have mercy. Do you have sin in your life that you are covering up? If so, you need to confess it and forsake it. I'm not saying you stand up in front of everybody right here and confess and forsake it. But you need to get before God and the person you sinned against and confess and forsake it to them. Otherwise, you're not going to find mercy. According to Proverbs 28.13. Then we have the wicked kings. All throughout this genealogy. Many wicked kings. Bowing down to Baal and do all kinds of wicked things. But I want to focus on just one. The guy in verse 11 named Jeconiah. And he's also called Coniah in the scriptures, and also called Jehoiakim in the scriptures. So he has a couple of different names here, so don't get confused with that. But in Jeremiah 22, let's turn there real quick, Jeremiah 22, we find that a curse was put upon Jeconiah, who was basically the last king of, of, of Judah before they were taken into captivity in Babylon. And this is Jeremiah's prophecy. And we'll start at verse 24 and read through verse 30. And remember, Coniah is the same guy as Jeconiah. Okay? As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet of my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those who face your fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you, into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David, and ruling any more in Judah. So, how can Jeconiah be written down as childless, as it says in verse 30, if, according to the genealogy, he has children? Well, I think verse 30, the very end of it, clarifies what it means by as childless. It says, For none of his descendants shall prosper, in what way? Sitting on the throne of David, and ruling any more in Judah. So the question now becomes, did any of Jeconiah's bloodline descendants ever sit on the throne of David, after him? The answer is no. And the question is, will they ever? And the answer is no. Because, like we've already discussed in Matthew, is Matthew the bloodline of Jesus? It's the legal line of Jesus. So in Jesus being a legal son of Joseph, he can have rights to the throne through the kings, but yet he doesn't contradict this prophecy because he's not of the bloodline of Jeconiah. He's simply a descendant, a legal descendant of Jeconiah. So the prophecy still stands that no bloodline descendant of Jeconiah will rule and reign ever again in the kingdom and on the throne of David. Yet he was also, as we already discussed, a bloodline descendant of David, which is required through Mary. And I'm going to tell you this. I, I don't see how there could be very many possible legal messiahs or possible messiahs out there. You know, the Jews are still supposedly waiting for the messiah. But how many people are going to qualify in this way? That they're going to be a legal descendant of David and the kings of David, kings that came after David, but not a bloodline descendant, but they'll also be a bloodline descendant of David through someone else. That's going to be some tough qualifications to meet for the Jews who are still waiting for the Messiah. That's going to be some tough requirements to meet. 
But Jesus does meet the requirements. He does meet the fulfilled prophecy. And if I don't, I don't have any stats on it, but I'll tell you this. I have a hard time believing there will be anyone else who could even possibly meet these requirements. Especially since in A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, most of the genealogical records were destroyed with them. So what are the Jews going to do now? How are they even going to figure it out? Because if someone's going to be the Messiah, they must meet these requirements of being a legal descendant and qualified to be on the throne, but be a bloodline descendant of David as well. So why am I going through all these uh, wicked people who are found throughout Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, 1 through 17? Simply to remind us that Jesus is the King of Grace. The King of Grace. It doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter how wicked we have been. It doesn't matter how bad our sin has been or how much our sin has been. Since God is willing to let prostitutes and adulterers and fornicators and murderers and non-Jews be a part of his genealogy, this is a sign that he's allowing, he would allow anyone, anyone to be his child of God through faith. Become a child of promise, a child of Abraham through faith. We simply must repent of our sins, forsake them altogether, trust in what Christ did on the cross, and persevere in holiness and to the end. If we're willing to do these things, God is willing to forgive us of our sins, reconcile us to a right relationship with God the Father, which really is eternal life, and give us eternal life with Him in the end. The people found this genealogy to be a reminder of a few things for us. One, we must not forget where we have come from. We must not forget where we have come from, especially as open-air preachers. I mean, you go to a gay pride, it's, it's hard to not be disgusted to the point where you're disgusting the person at what's going on there. And really, to be disgusted at all sin. And the longer I live for Jesus, the closer I get to Him, the more disgusted I am by sin. The more repulsive it is to me. So we should not forget where we came from. It doesn't matter if you did a little bit of witness before you became a Christian. Maybe you're a child and became a Christian at 7, 8 years old or 10, 11 years old. It doesn't matter how little witness you did or how much witness you did before you became a Christian. You still have to understand, you were once a hell-deserving sinner. You were once a hell-deserving sinner. Don't that ever escape your mind when you witness unto others who are right now hell-deserving sinners on their way to hell. Don't that ever escape your mind. It doesn't matter if we were a lot, just a liar and covetous and prideful, or whether we were a fornicator or homosexual or a murderer. We were hell-deserving sinners. And in all honesty, if God were to hold our past record against us, we still deserve hell. We still deserve it. Number two, that God can redeem the most wicked of the wicked. You know, I, I know, I know someone who used to be a homosexual and is now a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11, the Bible says that people at Corinth used to be homosexuals. Some of them used to be homosexuals, but they're not Christians. I mentioned homosexuals because they're some of the most wicked and vile people I've met. They're very violent, and they're very opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But no matter how wicked someone may be or may become, we must see that there's a potential for them to be changed and become a child of God through faith. We must see them as that. Otherwise, we become callous to them. And we're going to have almost like a hatred for them. Almost wanting them to go to hell. And God forbid we ever have that attitude towards a lost sinner. God forbid. And number three, as I said, Jesus is the king of grace. He came to the same sinners, not the righteous. The righteous don't need a savior. Of course, no one is righteous, no, not one. He came to reconcile the world back to the Father through his sacrifice on the cross. But just to clarify... Titus 2, 11-14, For the grace of God, which brings salvation, has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. He might redeem us with every lawless deed, from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. If that doesn't define you as a person, don't be deceived. You don't have the grace of God. The grace of God changes somebody. 
and teach them to deny ungodliness and worry less and live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God is some account in heaven that I can sin all I want just draw from this account every time I sin. The grace of God changes somebody. But it can change anybody. And everybody. If only they're willing to become broken over their sin and forsake it and follow Him the rest of their days. So maybe we never forget these facts. That Christ came to save the worst of the worst. And I'll tell you, often the worst of the worst become the best of the best. Just like Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. He's forgiven me a lot. He has. And he deserves my all. And I just pray that I can live as much as I lived for the devil for 19 years, I can live that much for him the rest of my days. And hopefully you'll do the same. All right. Does anyone have uh, any questions? Well, let me pass it out before you ask questions. This is something I want you to have as a handout. Um, just maybe give uh, one per family here. I only have ten copies. This is the side by side. We can stick children to share one too. Uh, genealogy between Matthew and Luke, so you can look at it for yourself. And uh, there you go. So pass these out over here if you don't mind. And then also I have another one here. Which is, a, I think, is a real interesting uh, chart. It tells you, uh, it gives you the, from Adam all the way up to Joseph, and you can see uh, who lived with who, and uh, you get to see that Noah's father was alive at the same time as Adam. So Noah's father actually got to know Adam, the first man. So that's actually put together by uh, Dr. Dino's Creation Science of Angels, and they put that together. It's a really good resource to have. And uh, so hopefully that'll, that'll help you. Yeah, Kent Hovind. So obviously that'll, hopefully that'll help you in your study of this and uh, give you a clearer picture of what's going on here between the two genealogies. Okay, there's, uh, so I want to open the floor now to questions. If anyone has any questions? It's interesting, you did this study today, because about a week ago, Gigi and I were talking about this, that I could not understand why Jesus was called the son of David when he wasn't in David's genetic lineage. So I understand the Matthew side, the, 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 the what you call it, the legal lineage? Yes, the royal lineage, yeah. But I still don't understand the genetic connection. That's through Mary. And, and explain that. Mary's genealogy is found in Luke. Okay. Mary is the blood mother of Jesus. Je- Jesus had no blood father. Correct. The Holy Spirit conceived him in Mary. Mary is the blood mother of Jesus. So the blood lineage of David is found through Mary. And that's that's the genealogy you see in Luke. So Mary came through David's lineage? Through him. Through Nathan. That's what I missed. Through Nathan. Okay. I've through the son Nathan, yeah. So okay. yeah, the blood. I never understood that. Yeah. You got the bloodline through through Mary and Luke, through David's son Nathan, who was never king. You don't even really see much about him in the Bible. And then you have the the royal lineage, the legal lineage through uh, through, through Joseph, uh, on in Matthew. Okay. And like I said, that 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 helps to to clarify this issue of Jeconiah's his curse, because it says in, in Jeremiah it says that his, none of his his bloodline descendants will ever rule on the throne of David again. And he was the last one. There hasn't been one since then. And yet Jesus is not a blood relative of Jeconiah. But he is a legal relative of Jeconiah through Joseph. So Jesus is qualified on both things. And for someone to qualify to be the Messiah, to be the king of, of Israel, to be, sit on the throne of David, they must be a legal descendant of, of, of David through the kings, through the king's line. But they must also be a blood relative of, uh, of David through another person, because if he's a blood relative of David through the king's line, Jeconiah's curse uh, disqualifies that person from being the king of Israel. Well, let me ask a logical question. In sure. this. That being the case, and with this, when you're dealing with the probability of anyone else fulfilling this, how in the world can Judaism refute this? Well, that, that's, that's just it. I don't think they can. 
And How it, do they deal with this? Well, it's one issue I've, I've, I've witnessed use quite a bit, not as much as other religions, but uh, when I ask them, how do you have a genealogy? How, how do you figure out who the Messiah is going to be? They really don't have an answer for it because most of their genealogical records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So they really don't have an answer for it. The same thing when I ask a Jew in Isaiah 53. Who is Isaiah 53 talking about? And they never can give me an answer. I've asked this so many times in open air. Tell me who Isaiah 53 is talking about. And it can never give me an answer. Because they don't have an answer. Uh, but just because your answer is truthful, or even persuasive, doesn't mean they have to give in to it. You can be as persuasive as possible. I think in my recent debate with an atheist, I mean, I don't think he stood a chance. Not because I'm such a good debate, but because I had the truth on my side. And even though it was persuasive to a lot of people, he's not going to become a Christian theist. At least he hasn't yet. So just because we're persuasive, just because we have the truth, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. Now, you should present good arguments, and you should argue sometimes. Uh, but just because your argument's true and you're persuasive and you defeated their arguments and reduced them to absurdity, doesn't mean they're going to convert and come over to your side. So we have to think between persuasiveness and convincing somebody, I guess you could say. So. Uh, one question about that. Uh, you know, not that I know of, John. I didn't really look into it too much, but um, that's the only mention of it I know of. Was the cause Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary? Elizabeth. Was the daughter of Aaron? Right, a Levite. Yep. And they were cousins. Right. So that doesn't make Mary a daughter of Aaron. No, sure doesn't. No, nope. you see, see it right there in the genealogy. I mean, Aaron and Moses were brothers. They had two different lines, though. Yeah. Yeah, if you, if you look at the comparison between the two, there's a lot more names in Mary's genealogy between uh, David and Jesus. A lot more names. You see how squished it is comparing between David and Jesus and Joseph's genealogy. So they obviously were having children a lot quicker, or it was just the oldest child every time that came through as the person in the lineage. I don't know, but there were there was a lot more people involved there. I think there's actually 14 more. So if I counted right. But it's been interesting to study this genealogy. Uh, hopefully, the least you get is the genealogies aren't as boring as you thought they were, and that you can get something out of them. Does the number 14 have a significance? Yeah, that's a good question. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't find out about that. That'd be something to look into, though. Something interesting to look into. I, I don't know of a. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know of any significance for 14. I mean, if I have the Bible, you see significance with 12 with 7, with 3, with 10. Uh, but I've never ever remember any seen any significance of 14 until Matthew, where it says between this and this 14, between this and this 14, between this and this 14. That's at verse 17, I think. So that's, that's the only significance I know of. Matthew says that to Right. And, and like I said, the reason for that is is because you know, they're trying to prove something to the Jews here, Matthew, that he's of Father Abraham, he's of King David, the two most important figures, which you see it mentioned in verse 1. The son of Abraham, the son of David. They're the two most important figures. That's why he goes back to them. Whereas in Luke, he's talking to Gentiles, he wants to show them the, the humanity side of Jesus, and he goes all the way back to the beginning. All the way back. So there's, there's points in writing these genealogies out. And the Jews were, were very... Uh, particular about their genealogical records. Very particular about them. Because these things are so important to them. Right, does anyone have anything they want to, any other question or anything they want to add to what's been said?